I sent out my second letter and again, did not hear back for a while. I was getting pretty nervous. I honestly didn't hear anything back until October. And all of a sudden, it was just a direct email from my family, all in Korean. And I was like, Um, what is this? And the email read something like, I got tired of waiting for the agency and I was nervous that something (laughs) something had happened. So I I wrote Uh you directly. And she's like, don't tell the agency we're doing this, but this is so much easier. And then after that, we started having direct communication emails like once every week or two. Then I told my birth mother. I know this is sudden and kind of crazy, but I'll be in Korea this winter. And I understand if you can't, but if you can, I would love to meet you. Yeah, she was thrilled. She was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Hey, and welcome to I'm Adopted, Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. On this episode, I chat with Matt. He's a friend of Lily's from a couple episodes ago. Hopefully you've listened to that one by now. Lily introduced us, and Matt has a really interesting story, adoption story, that I won't spoil here. I'll let him explain it and get into it in the episode. He is the person who I'm sure you've heard me mention in some of the episodes that are out by now, something called the SAT group or the Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits group on Facebook. Matt is the person who introduced me to that group from which I have gathered a lot of information and met a lot of people who have been helping me and willing to share their stories. I've made a lot of connections through that group. And so I am forever grateful to Matt for telling me about that group and encouraging me to join. He was totally right. It has been an amazing experience. As I said, I will let him explain his own crazy story I'll just say this, if whether or not you're adopted, I'm sure we've all heard kind of disaster stories about people who are adopted meeting their birth family and for some reason or another, it goes terribly wrong. Matt's story is just the opposite of that. So if you've ever been curious, if you've ever wondered about what that kind of experience is like, stay tuned. Now, because my conversation with Matt was an extra long one, uh, longer than my podcast episodes have typically been so far, I have decided to split uh, my conversation with him into part one and part two. So today you will be hearing part one and next Tuesday will be the second half, part two. Hello, Matt. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. Do you prefer Matt or Matthew? Just so I... Matt is fine. Okay, Matt. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. I really appreciate you setting aside some time for this. Yeah, of course. Just to start us off, kind of like, tell me how you know Lily. Lily and I both went to Peabody together during our master's. Oh, okay. I think 
I think we were, she was just like one year ahead of me, maybe. And by your email handle, I'm going to guess that you play piano. I'm not a piano major, so I get a little bit of slack from my pianist friends. But when I was a kid, I played more piano. Oh, okay. What instrument did you do you play? I'm an oboist, but I went to Peabody for composition. Okay. Oh, so Lily also does oboe, I believe. Still, maybe. Yeah. Well, she did, and now she does only flute? Yeah, we kind of, like, we, 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 like, made some jokes about that because I occasionally get, it's common for woodwind players to play the other instruments, like, in a certain capacity. I occasionally play flute jobs, and she occasionally, I think, has picked up some oboe jobs on the side. But we are definitely not each other's equal on those instruments. <laughs> okay, well... Yeah, as I said, thanks for sitting down to talk with me. Your name came up in my conversation with Lily just because you are adopted, right? Yep. I was adopted from South Korea. But I've been thinking a lot about kind of, you know, how does, yes, how does my identity as an adoptee play out in my everyday life? And what kinds of privileges does that afford me, right? Right. Because on the one hand, I have a white presenting name. So, yeah. Especially as a musician. You know, my name travels places before my face does. And I'm sure yes. that Lily probably also experiences this. Yeah. You know, when our name is read on an application sheet or an audition list or a job application, they see a white presenting name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all kind of humorous. I've learned to laugh at it at least. But there's always that moment when they see my face and they say, they say to themselves, oh, you're Matt Pellegrino. Right. Exactly. Yes. Some, totally. Something. Something. Like, I, again, it was a very funny experience. But when I interviewed for Peabody, I walked into the room, and the professor with the clipboard of the names kind of read my name as he was looking up and said, "Okay, so Matt Pellegrino," and that was when he saw. <laughs> and it was a good laugh. It definitely made the interview funnier. You know, that's a very interesting problem to have in music, especially right now with all of the kind of social kind of issues playing out, right? Because, okay, on the one hand, what kind of privileges did I enjoy as a quote-unquote anonymously white person, right, on paper? Where did I have no trouble applying or getting in because I had a white name? But that gets extra complicated in music because Asians are at times, a good minority in music, and at times, not Mm -hmm. a good minority in music. Mm -hmm. I mean, we hear all the time that Asians are the model minority, right? That they get good jobs, even though they don't get paid still as much as their white counterparts, and that they have access to, you know, more specialization, like, you know, Asians go on to become doctors and engineers and all of those things. Right. However, that used to be the case with music. Asians were considered good for music programs. However, you're starting to see more and more that Asians are getting, like they're bloating the student body at certain music institutions. Mm -hmm. So now I don't think any institution would ever admit this, but there's definitely a cutting back to, we need less Asian people in our program. Yeah. So Wow, that is such a good point. And it varies depending on your discipline, because I know I've talked to some Korean, like Korean national friends or Korean American friends Mm -hmm. who have a Korean name and they're Mm -hmm. pianists and there's a lot of Korean pianists. Mm -hmm. And 
A few of them, more than a few of them have told me, I'm considering changing my name legally to an American name because my American name is less likely to get rejected from the finals than my Korean name. Wow. Because they don't want too many Koreans in the finals. And what do you say to them? Well, that's a shame. But I mean, I've had a friend who has like a very, you know, Korean name who's like, what should I change like my name to so that it doesn't seem so Korean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know, I wish that wasn't the case. But for so that's that's the case with piano. It's also kind of the case with violin. But for my discipline, composition, there's a few things at odds with each other about being Korean versus being white. On the one hand, there are not many Korean composers in classical music. So what does that mean? That comes with the presupposition that Asian composers are still inferior to Western composers. Mm -hmm. And they lack the sophistication of the Western tradition. So mm -hmm. if I have my white name, then people might think I'm a good composer. However, if I have a Korean name, people might say, probably not as good as a white person. However, that could make our diversity look very good. Right. So and what am how I supposed annoying. to do? Yeah, like how annoying that they can't be one in the same. I've like kind it, of, it seems either one or the other. I've kind of come up with a little theory that I would love to test, but I will never do because it could get me in a lot <laughs> of trouble. Uh-huh. I wonder if I applied to a competition twice with all of the titles changed, but none of my materials changed, and right. applied once as Matthew Pellegrino and a second time as Lee Ji-hoon, who mm -hmm. would do better? Wow. And maybe even arguably like better by what measure? Yeah. Would I do better right. because they want an Asian person in their diversity pool, or would I do better because they would not overlook an Asian name and say, oh, Matt Pellegrino, he seems like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting. I really have no connection to the musical world at all. So it's very interesting to hear that perspective, especially because as you touched on in the beginning, music can be such in both good and bad ways, like a stereotypical setting for, you know, particularly Asians and as you said, I feel like I've experienced a lot of that kind of like, oh, Asian is is the racial bridge between being white and being black and brown because it's a little bit white, but a little bit not. And it kind of feels like somewhere in between. You know, adoptees are in this weird kind of best of both worlds, but not really kind of. Yes. I actually had a conversation kind of like this with someone from the adoptee group who is a mm -hmm. bit more educated in critical race theory and oh wow really helped me break down a lot of the things I was having trouble kind of parsing through and articulating even to myself. And I think he really put it nicely for me. So yeah, you kind of mentioned how there's this Asianness lies somewhere between blackness or, you know, dark I'm doing air quotes, but you know, dark minority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And whiteness. And my friend explained it like this. Unfortunately, minority status is on a spectrum and there lie two poles, black and white. And mm -hmm. in that spectrum, Asianness falls closer to whiteness. And there's a lot right. of you know historical baggage that comes with that as like, you know, Asian right. Asian high ancient culture and bringing yeah. bringing that likening it to whiteness in a way that both makes Asians feel as though they're being uplifted 
while also further suppressing darker minorities, right? That's that's yes. the real purpose of the model minority myth is that it creates even more division that suppresses blackness. And the way that I felt about, you know, I grew up in a white life, basically. Yeah. Was, yes, I was participating in white privilege. And I did feel bad about that until it occurred to me that while I was participating in some white privilege, it was really more class privilege. Because Uh. while we did enjoy certain aspects of that, we'll still never enjoy the full I don't know, benefits or the advantages of being white because Asians are white adjacent. We will never be white. So the reason for the conflict, in my opinion, is while, yes, I remember and I can identify parts in my life in which my Asian-ness has, you know, disadvantaged me or caused, Mm -hmm. you know, blatant racism, Mm -hmm. those moments will never erase or the white privilege will never exist because of moments like that. However, at the same time, yes, we didn't grow up with Asian parents. We didn't face the stereotypes that come with being in an Asian family at a restaurant where they assume you might not speak English or, even you know, first generation Americans who have to translate for their parents on the phone, stuff like that. So perhaps we feel a little bit guilty due to the fact that we never had to deal with the disadvantages of perhaps being a Asian American family in the way that some of our first generation or second generation Asian American friends may have experienced that in their lives. And that's why we feel this adjacency to white privilege because we've enjoyed it typically through class privilege. I don't know if it like ever gets, you know, talked about, but you've got to have money to adopt. Right. Oh, that's such a great point. Yes, absolutely. It is. I mean, I feel like, that's why the poster face of adoption is white man and a white woman. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Adoption's not cheap by mm-hmm. any means. So pretty yeah. much every adoptee who I know comes from a middle upper class white family residing in some kind of suburb. Right. Exactly. Typically yep, just like me. the picture of the American nuclear family, you know, like with the white fence and two car garage. Yeah. And all of us can talk about our boring kind of suburban life. Yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, Lily has told me that you have a little, uh, have a unique story when it comes to your adoption and your DNA relatives and that you're in touch with them and you talk with them and you see them and visit them. (laughs) Yes. um, Still kind of wild, still kind of crazy to me. But Lily actually met me very shortly before all of that happened. So yeah, I can I can kind of give like the Cliff Notes version. That would be great. I'm so intrigued to know how that experience was for you. Yeah, I know it's not common. And I consider myself very lucky to have the experience that I had. Yeah. Even among other adoptees who have had reunions, mine is an unexpectedly positive result. But wow. basically So about two years ago, maybe, I think it was the spring, late spring of 2018. I had just finished up my master's. So I I was kind of, I had some free time on my hands. And I came across Twitter, this writer, Mm -hmm. and she was, she was like somehow retweeted into my timeline. And 
then I saw that she was writing a book about her adoption reunion story. And that kind of mm -hmm. piqued my interest. And then on YouTube, it's just kind of like happenstance, YouTube algorithm fed me a short, like 15 minute video adoptee reunion, like, mm. like a little mini doc about a Korean adoptee who went back to Korea and met her birth parents. So mm -hmm. both of these, I was like, you know what? Yeah, sure, why not? And I watched this video and she was talking about what she did in the video. And I paused the video because there was a moment where it showed like, you know, some of her paperwork. And I was like, wait a minute, mm -hmm. that's, that's like my agency. That's the exact same agency that I went through. My paperwork looks just right. like that. And wow. in this documentary, she said, all I had to do was contact the agency and they started the search for me. And I was like, no way, <laughs> no way. It can't, <laughs> that's too it easy. can't be that easy. Cause my entire life, I assumed it would be impossible if not like, right. You know, really difficult, if not impossible. That's what I told people whenever they would ask me like, Oh, yeah. would you ever like want to try? And I would just say, honestly, I just hear that people hit dead ends and that it's really complicated. And I would have to probably do a lot of work to get nothing. So I don't really think I need to. I don't really think I want to. And I have everything I need. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was like that until I was like 20, at least 21 or 22. Yeah. People would ask me. I even had a kind of awkward ex-girlfriend give me a DNA kit because she thought it might interest me. And I was like, I don't, I yeah. don't really want to do this. Uh-huh. But, wow. you know, this documentary, it seemed really easy. And sure enough, mm -hmm. I Googled my adoption agency. And then on the homepage was a tab that said post-adoptive services. And wow. all I had to do was send an email. And they got back to me a few weeks later. I kind of had to badger them with some phone calls at midnight so mm -hmm. that I could reach them during the day <laughs> in Korea. Yeah. <laughs> but they sent me a form. And I was like, wow, okay, this is it. And I wasn't home. So I had to call up my parents and say, hey, guys, so I'm doing the search. Could you scan me a picture of my forms? And they were like, wow, you're really doing it. And thank, thank mm -hmm. God. My, I was a little nervous to talk to my parents, but they have been nothing but supportive since the beginning. Because I know that doesn't always happen to everyone. But you know, my, mm -hmm. my parents, they get a lot of points just for always being really good about being understanding about that stuff. Yeah, that is so good. And it felt really good for me to not have to worry like what my parents might think. So they, yeah, like you're not replacing them yeah. or trying to, you know, find a new family or anything. They've been really supportive and understanding since the beginning. And it made it so much less scary to go through knowing that. Wow. But yeah, that's so great. Yeah. So I got all the forms, I got all the paperwork in. And then I would say about, oh, I don't know. I think I sent that out in the beginning of June. Then maybe mm -hmm. by the end of June, the, agency contacted me again saying you know we have made contact with your birth mother we weren't able to locate your father however your birth mother mm -hmm. is very surprised and thankful but she's also very cautious because her family does not know about you which of course you know, ah. i expected yeah definitely and it said she would love to know more about you so she's requesting that you could send a letter and some pictures for us to relay to her. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, holy shit. You know, wow. like they, oh God, they, they found her. That was too easy. Yeah. What the hell? 
Wow. That's like you went from literally like no, like nothing. And then it was like one degree of separation. That's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I'd heard so many other stories of adoptees who go months or years even just like nothing or they or even worse, they make contact and they say, I don't know what you're talking about because they don't want to open that part of their lives up again. Or they say they don't want to make contact. I mean, that happened with the documentary about the twin sisters who found each other. Yes. They they were... Was it somewhere between? uh, I think that one was called Twinsters. Twinsters. Okay. There's like three that I like have like melded into one in my mind. They made contact and their birth mother did not want to reopen contact with them. And I mean, I understand it's probably very painful to kind of get back into, but... That's, you know, all the things I was nervous about. I was like, oh, okay, geez. And so yeah, I wow. told my parents, they were thrilled. And my sister lovingly scanned pages and pages out of the baby books and the family <laughs> photo albums. Because it was like, um, well, oh my God, what do you include in a letter and some like pages of photos to wrap up 22 years of, how old was I? 24 years of your life to like send to a person. Right. Absolutely. So um, This person who... And like to this person who I guess you will never know and I can never know, but it occurred to me like this summer, I think in one of my therapy sessions, like, holy shit, it is really likely that like the birth parents or the birth mother probably thinks about the child that he or she gave up or you know, for lack of better phrasing, or, you know, did ended up not being able to keep for whatever reason, a lot more than I think I had had assumed. I always, you know, I was when I was a kid, I was very sad about my adoption, actually, for like a really, a long time. It affected me, I don't know, pretty, pretty deeply emotionally until I was maybe about Mm -hmm. like five or six years old. And my my poor mother would just stay up in my room crying with me about it because she didn't know what to do either. Like, how do I console this child? Yeah, sad, sad. Do you mind me me asking? Like, sad how in the in the thought that oh, I didn't. No one wanted me, or sad. Yeah, I have distinct, vivid memories of, unfortunately, just asking my mom over and over again, why didn't they want me? No matter no matter how she explained it, it doesn't make sense to a child. Yeah. And Absolutely. my mom, I'm sure she used every explanation in the book, every thought that came to mind that she felt in her heart might console me. But mm-hmm. it honestly just took a while until I realized being sad about it wouldn't do anything. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as well-intentioned as her efforts are, she also will never know the answer, right? So like, that is so tough. And, you know, as a kid, um, I think I hoped in my like heart that, you know, they're thinking of me too, right? But isn't that also quite mm-hmm. sad to think about? Yes, ex- yes, exactly. So then after a while, oh God, I just decided, yeah. I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't randomly plagued by like thoughts of my birth family, to be honest. That's, that's been, that's, wow. that's lingered with me my entire life, you know, just wow. going throughout my day and, you know, it would be random times, like in the kitchen, cutting some fruit and saying like, oh, I wonder what like they're up to. Just stuff like that. Wow. And wondering if they're thinking of me in the same way. But at a certain point, even then, I started thinking, maybe they forgot about me. Maybe they're not thinking about me because Mm -hmm. it would be too hard. Mm -hmm. And Wow. 
again, I'm lucky I, I ended up getting answers to these questions. So, you know, I wrote a one-page letter to try and detail my life and just say, you know, I have a nice, loving family. I yeah. am in school. I'm doing a doctorate of all things. I grew up in like, wow. you know, Long Island, New York and sent mm-hmm. baby pictures, Christmas pictures, birthday pictures, graduation pictures, everything under the sun that you could imagine. I think there was like 12, yeah. 12-ish pages of just pictures that I sent. <laughs> and this was the only real hitch. This was the anxiety inducing part. I sent out that letter in like the mm-hmm. last week of June, I believe. And mm-hmm. I did not hear anything until August 9th. Wow. I had just moved in. Yes, I had just moved into a new apartment. And I remember it was a hot, sweaty August morning. I was mm-hmm. hungover and I woke up on my couch because that's what happens when you're hungover. You wake up really early in the morning. <laughs> and I suddenly had an email from the agency in my inbox and I lost my freaking mind. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Completely. I've been having stress dreams about this email. Like, no joke. It's something that unfortunately happens to me whenever I know there's something important that I'm waiting for. Ah. And I was like, oh my God, it's seven in the morning, I got this email. And I actually foolishly, in my impatience, told the agency, I have someone that is fluent in Korean and English. So you don't have to waste your time translating it. Just send it to me. Wow. Well, that someone was in Korea at the time. And so I was trying to get in touch with them to get them to translate this gigantic letter that's only in Korean. And I couldn't get in touch with them for like a moment. So I had to copy and paste chunks of the letter into Google Translate, which of course does a terrible job, but enough of a job to immediately make me start bawling. (laughs) This podcast is in collaboration with the Brain and Body Lab from UCLA in California. They're a research group, and they study the connection between the mind, the brain, and the body. Their current study right now is all about how early life experiences influence, both physically and emotionally, the health of adopted or guardianship children. So how cool that they reached out to me and asked me if I would collaborate with them on this promotion. If you are an adopted or guardianship child or teen, they have this ongoing study that you can find on their website, which I'll put at the end. And it's just a a few questions about your development. You, from home, virtually, it's all COVID safe. You'll play games on your computer, complete surveys, And it's optional, but you can also provide biological samples like your saliva or something if you want. But again, that part is optional. You don't have to. What you get in return for your participation is $45 to $65. And if you're a parent doing this with your child, then your child will get toys and various prizes. And you'll learn all about social sciences and how their research works. Why should you participate? Well, aside from they're a good earnest group of people who are trying to do good work in this field that really has a severe lack of research already, it helps build knowledge on how different early life experiences can affect your health or your child's health. 
if you are adopted or a guardianship child or have adopted or are the guardian of a child or teen in those circumstances, then it is critical to know and understand how the events of the past can still be impacting the present. Even if you've come to terms with what's happened or gone to therapy, there are still very real physical and emotional health effects that can come from past trauma. I actually mentioned this in my original podcast promotion way before I had published any episodes or really begun the journey of podcasting at all. I mentioned this exact thing. The idea that past trauma impacts present life is something that needs to be studied more. And the Brain and Body Lab at UCLA is doing just that. Some specifics, if you are interested in participating in this opportunity, the age range for children participants is six to nine years old or 13 to 16 for teens. If you have any other questions, you can contact them via their website, which is brainandbodylab.psych.ucla.edu. Their email is bablab, B-A-B-L-A-B, dot ucla at gmail.com, or you can call them at 310-909-7083. I will also have a corresponding post on the podcast Instagram feed, where I will write out all of this information. So if you're driving in the car or you don't have a pen and paper with you now, you can check there later and find all this info again. Thanks again so much to the Brain and Body Lab for being willing to pair up with me on this promotion. I really, really support the work that is being done here. And I hope that this leads to many other participants. So audience, don't disappoint them. Head on over to their website and sign up to be a participant. Okay, thanks for listening. Let's get back to the episode. I, I still have these letters all saved in a Google Doc, but I think, you know, the gist of it was, I, you know, she said, I feel so, it's such a miracle to be, reaching out to you like this. And I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to contact you first. Wow. And the letter was honestly very apologetic, but also there was real warmth and joy to the things that she was writing. And she told me, mm-hmm. this is my name. I'm 40, I think 44 years old at the time. And I live in this city with my parents, my husband and my three children. And I was like, holy crap, (laughs) I have three siblings. Yeah, like what? Um, Oh my God. And then she kind of ended the letter by saying, I'm so happy that we're, you know, in touch like this again. And I can't wait to hear more about you. Please write me back. So, you know, that was crazy. And I immediately got started on sending the next letter and another another Mm -hmm. whole round of pictures. And then after after I sent that. There was another small hiccup in communication because we were going through the agency as a middleman. They kind of they kind sure. of try to do that for a while. So in case anything happens, the agency is there to like kind of broker the communication. Yeah, like mediate. Yeah. yeah. 
But <laughs> so I sent out my second letter and again, did not hear back for a while. I was getting pretty nervous. And yeah. I think I honestly didn't hear anything back until October, which made me super wow. nervous. And all of a sudden, it was just a direct email from my family, all in Korean. And I was oh. like, what is oh. this? Because I'd, I'd sent my email address in the first letter. And the email yeah. read something like, I got tired of waiting for the agency. And I was nervous that <laughs> something, <laughs> oh, something no. had happened. They lost one of our letters or something. So I, I wrote mm-hmm. you directly. And she's like, don't tell the agency we're doing this, but this is so much easier. And then after that, we we started having direct communication emails, like once every week or two. And it yeah. was also during that time that I was very generously offered this crazy opportunity. I was offered a certain amount of money to fund a trip to Korea. And I was like, "Wow, I've got to take this chance. So I accepted on the condition that I try to raise money as well, because, you know, it, it could be a very expensive trip. Flight, flight alone yeah. was very expensive. So I went ahead and started to go fund me. And luckily, I was able to overfund the trip by a little bit. And then I told my birth mother, I know this is sudden and kind of crazy, but I'll be in Korea this winter. and. I understand if you can't, but if you can, I would love to meet you. And yeah, she was thrilled. She was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Yes, just tell me your schedule and your itinerary and I'll do what I can to come and meet you. And at first we did, again, try working with the agency because they can facilitate these things. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. they could only set up meetings on weekdays and my birth mother has like a very full work schedule. Mm-hmm. So we signed the release forms and just worked it out ourselves and were independent of the agency mm-hmm. at this point. Then it all happened real fast. I told her what my schedule would be like. I arrived in Korea on, I believe, the 20th of December. And mm-hmm. I think it was a Thursday. And she told me, so she works at a, <laughs> she works at a big company. And she said, the Mm company is quite large and a number of the employees are musicians, which Mm. she actually revealed she was as well, like a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, kind of funny. She sent me back um, a Mm. picture of her playing the cello and I was like, oh my God. Uh, And she said, it's quite amateurish. So I hope that she said something like, I'm nervous because you're a professional musician, (laughs) but it's it's the day after you arrive in Korea, if you aren't too tired and you want to come see that we can meet afterwards and i was like that's crazy i get to go see my mom in a concert and like yeah but then i was like oh my god i have to go like watch a concert of this and like just be cool (laughs) and like not (laughs) not be panicking (laughs) oh my god totally so that's what happened i arrived in korea and then the next day we took a bullet train out to the city of Chunan, which is where I was born. Mm-hmm. And wow. it was like a 26-minute ride by bullet train, which is incredible. And we spent about most of the midday there and then found our way to the little concert hall in the evening. And by that point, I was basically like shaking the entire time. Yeah. And it was a small recital hall. It was like very small. I think I sat all the way in the back row in like the corner 
to be as hidden as possible mm-hmm. because it also occurred to me yeah. that if I'm there, the rest of my family might be there. Oh. And I think the distance for me to the stage was maybe a good, I don't know, 20 feet at most. Not, mm-hmm. not far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tried reading the program as best I could. At this point, my Korean wasn't very great. Right, I was going to say, are you talking in Korean this whole time? Uh, I started learning Korean about the time I started the birth search. So from May okay, from May right. to December, I was a functional caveman. Got it. Like me in yeah. French. And <laughs> yeah. I could I could like say basics, but my sentences were like me, food, want. But mm. anyways, I read the program. I was like, "Oh my god, she's uh fourth this thing with the like a little mm, like a cello wow. quartet was on fourth and yeah. so waiting 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 enjoying the music and kind of impressed because this was like casual employee music night like they were all pretty good but then all of a sudden like oh my god there's my birth mother 20 feet from me playing cello on stage and i was like completely frozen <laughs> yeah sounds like a real out of body moment where you're like wow i've i've come all this way i'm in korea like what a surreal combination of factors and yeah so then the concert ended i flew out of that room as fast as possible because again i (laughs) definitely had a suspicion that more family members were in there and basically what we had done to arrange the meeting was in korea there are study cafes they're quite popular and you can mm-hmm. reserve like a group project room that's like, you know, glassed in with some like semi-translucent glass and a like table in the middle so that you can work on like group projects. So we reserved one of those mm-hmm. rooms and I uh, stopped off, got some post-concert flowers and just went to that cafe and waited. And yeah, the glass, again, it was like semi-transparent or like it was translucent. What is that frosted glass? I think. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you can like yeah, it was like yeah, a yeah, frosted yeah. glass box, and people were just walking past it over and over again. And every time someone walked mm-hmm. past the door, my heart like skipped a beat. And mm. then all of a sudden, I was just sitting there, and we we just hear the door start rattling, and it's like, well, okay, it's time. And the door opened, and there was my birth mother. <laughs> Wow. When you were sitting watching her perform, did you feel this sort of like, you know, hum of a kinship because of your musical, shall we say, proclivities? I think the music thing always, it kind of just made sense. My parents are Mm. not musically inclined, but Mm. my mom told me that before I was even talking, I was like humming. And she said mm-hmm. it was the weirdest mm-hmm. thing. After church, she'd be driving home, and I would basically hum like every song that I heard in the during during mass. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Well, his mom is definitely musical, because this wow. this is obviously not coming from us." How so cool! It was How really cool. cool for me to see like my my birth mother performing. Yeah. So then the yeah so this the door slid open, and she kind of awkwardly mm-hmm. kind of said hello and looked around the room and I don't remember exactly what happened next. I, again, I think I just kind of froze for a minute. Yeah. Like just a mental blackout. But then 
she was having trouble getting the door. It got like stuck on the rail. So I went over and just like closed the door all the way for her and turned around. And yep, then I was just face to face with my birth mother. And again, I was just kind of stuck. And of course, she knew what to do. She just yeah hugged me in a really tight embrace. And I <laughs> instantly started crying. And uh, of course, this part, again, you know, just the positivity of it, this part really broke me. She speaks a fair amount of English. And she oh. just first said, I'm sorry, in English. And that just, you know, tears. And then yeah, just I love you. Cuts to the core. English. Oh, my God. And oh, my God. It was honestly, as much as I would have hated to admit this years ago, everything that I wanted to hear from that experience. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And yeah, it was kind of late because the concert ended late and she got a little bit delayed getting over to the meeting room. So unfortunately, we only had about an hour to just kind of sit and talk. But like during that entire time, you know, she was just like holding my hand and looking at like my my features and being like, oh, you're purple underneath your fingernails like I am or like the veins Mm -hmm. on the insides of our arms are like the same color or just random little things like that. I was going to ask when she walked in, like, did you, as you said, there was sort of like a, a mental like blank because everything was so powerful. But do you remember any sort of like, oh my God, that's where I get my like eyebrows from or my bone structure. There were certain things that were pretty obvious from the first pictures that she sent me. My mm-hmm. friends were like, oh my God, same yeah. cheekbones. Oh my God, like same jawline, same whatever. Mm-hmm. And then being mm-hmm. in front of each other, like face to face, it was like, this is where I came from. It's very weird. Wow. I remember, because I remember like thinking, or I would see, you know, my my friends all throughout school be like, Oh yeah. Like I have my, my dad's nose and my mom's hair. And it like, and it always seemed to me like this fun game of like trying to figure out like which trait came from which parent. And I was always really just felt left out of that experience or of like things related to your birthday, because like, I didn't know for sure when my birthday of course, was. Yeah. And like things like that. So that much has just been so, so it was cool. very, cathartic kind of to yeah. see all of this like I didn't you don't come from nothing you know <laughs> but yeah so right. we we kind of had to cut the meeting short and start arranging actually the next day's meeting she yeah. managed mm-hmm. again this was around the holidays so she managed to line up some off time and we had to make our way back to the train station and then get back to Seoul because that's where I was staying and then the next day we mm. went out early in the morning and met her at the train station again. She picked me up and Mm -hmm. she actually drove me over to the office she works at because it's like a very big office with a huge like man-made lake park next to it. And Mm -hmm. she drove, she drove me over there and we just kind of took like a nice brisk morning walk. It wasn't too cold. The sun was out. And then this is Mm -hmm. where some of that funny stuff started happening of like, this is where these things come from. So I remember I have this funny little quirk. I sneeze every time I go out in the sun. 
It's like mm. a like yes. the photic, the yeah. photic thing. photosensory yeah. response. Every time it doesn't matter if I've yeah. already gone outside. If I go outside again, I will sneeze if the sun is out, even a little bit. <laughs> Typically two to three times okay. with big, violent, full body dad sneezes. And wow, my parents yeah. have always thought it was really funny. <laughs> so we got out of her car and I just instantly started sneezing like three times. And my birth mother just starts cracking up. She's like, oh does does he does he do that like often? And the person I was with is like, oh yeah, he does yeah. that like every time. And she's like, ah, so that's where my oldest gets it from. And she's oh like, my yeah, gosh. my my wow. first daughter does the exact same thing. She like sneezes all the time. And wow. then we just kind of strolled around the lake. And again, you know, we were communicating in really broken Korean and English, but we would mm -hmm. just point at stuff like in the trees or like birds or anything and just say like oh do you like that or what's your favorite like season <laughs> what's your favorite food what yeah. foods can you eat what foods can't you eat because i have like a lot of dietary restrictions and she was like oh uh -huh. yeah i don't really like spicy foods they give me a stomach ache and i was like oh yeah me too like i can't eat spicy food at all and she was like mm -hmm. i like cheese and i like noodles but if i eat too many of both of those i, I feel a little bit sick and I was like, yeah, I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and if I eat too much pasta, because I grew up in an Italian household, like I get a little bit yeah. of indigestion. Or mm. then she was like, do you like coffee? And I was like, yeah, I, I love coffee. And she's like, ah, yeah, when I was pregnant with you, I became allergic to the instant coffee mix that Koreans use. And she was like, mm -hmm. I'm not allergic to coffee, but it's the sweetener. And I was like, that makes so much sense because I have an artificial sweetener allergy. <laughs> Oh my God, you're, oh my it God, was you're so, kidding. So that weird. is uncanny. And she was like, you know, when, when you're little, do you have allergies? And I was like, I have some like, yeah, that mild food allergies. But when I was a kid, I had, I had mm -hmm. some problems with my sinuses and my ears. And she's like, oh, your little brother went through that. It was really scary. We thought he might, like, we thought he might mm -hmm. lose his hearing, but thankfully it didn't happen. And I was like, no, yeah. Like that was the wow. exact same problem I had when I was a baby. Like my mom was wow. really worried about it because they, of course, they didn't know like why this was happening. Yeah, totally. So oh all these God. like weird little wild. things. And, you know, she was asking me questions about my family and like my parents and my sister and just telling me more about like, yeah, you've got three little siblings. Their names are like this, this and this. They're these ages. This is what they're like. And then she's like, you know, I have three sisters and a brother which I, I knew that from the paperwork, at least. And she's like, mm -hmm. your grandparents, my parents actually live with me and my husband and like all this stuff. Yeah. And then after the walk was over, we took some pictures that I, I still have, of course. Then mm -hmm. after yeah. the walk was over, she took me to a like little sit down restaurant, you know, just owned by like probably a grandma and like her daughters or something like that. Really small <laughs> place. And we just sat around this low to the ground table having some stew and she just goes, okay, mm -hmm. ask me whatever you want. I'll tell you everything. And it was like, wow. <gasps> oh, okay. oh my God. Cause she was ready. And well, first yeah. I wanted to oh know more God. from her perspective. Right. So I was like, yeah, what was this like for you? And she was like, well, your letter really surprised me for a few reasons. You know, first off, 
I just kind of came home and the agency had contacted me. And usually my husband gets home before I do because he starts and ends work earlier. But I had to go take care of something for the kids. And I saw the letter and I almost dropped it immediately because I was so surprised. But also thankful that mm-hmm. I was able to get it and my husband didn't intercept it. Right. And I didn't know what to do right away, but I eventually contacted my older sister and she was able to help me with it a little bit. And so then she told me a little bit more about kind of how this fit into her life. She told me wow. a lot of my suspicions were kind of confirmed and a lot of the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fog or the haze kind of parted. You know, my yeah. parents had always told me like, your mother was very young and she couldn't take care of you. And she wanted you to have a mom and a dad because she wasn't married and like she couldn't take care of you by herself. And that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And on yeah. the paperwork, it said like, you know, both parents were 20. They met at university and could not stay together due to like incompatibility. So the mother was very anxious and gave her son up for adoption. And it sounds like the Korean, like it sounds like the Korean adoption system is just far superior. To I the think Chinese there's one. a lot of differences that I've learned from Chinese adoptees. In like the organizational structure, I think Korea has a longer history of adoption than China by just a little bit. Mm. But also, it was illegal to surrender your child in China, and it wasn't in yeah. Korea. Very so, true. from what I understand, with Chinese adoption was because of the one-child policy and because it was illegal to surrender a child, parents had no other choice than to abandon the child where they knew that they would be found with no documentation or little to no information. Whereas... And that tracks. That tracks so, so hard comparatively to your story because all of the, like, other Chinese adoptees that I know like we basically all have essentially the same story. We were left on a fi- like at a fire station or a police station or a hospital or a church with, you know, like an yep. index card. And I mean, the it. Chinese adoptees I know told me that they just got assigned a birthday and a name by the orphanage because there was just nothing. And yes, I, yeah, exactly. I at least knew exactly. my birthday. I was given a name, albeit from the foster family. Uh-huh. So in hindsight, looking back, I'm just grateful to have even had that information. But yeah, like to know that your parent, like you, that, you know, she was a single mom and that she was, you know, with someone at some point, but they had to split up at university. And that is just such so much context in a way that I feel like I can't, like, I I think that's also some, a big difference between the two countries is it sounds a lot like Chinese families were forced out of their children. And I mean, in both Korea and China, Mm -hmm. It's society, really. The the societal problems were the cause for mass adoption like this. One was the one-child policy, and the other was Korea has one of the most kind of, even to this day, kind of strict neo-Confucian conservative society like in the world. You can't Mm -hmm. be a single mom in Korea, even now. You can't be a single mom in Korea. You won't get a job. And even if you're like divorced, and you're a single mom, or your husband died and you're a single mom, you're in trouble. Right. You can't do that. Yeah. It's an interesting comparison to like in the West, actually, like, oh, a single working mom, that's unfortunate, but you know, more power to you kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. It's t- the totally antithesis. But 
So that was what I knew going in. And she gave me the whole story, despite what I thought. So Koreans measure age differently. (laughs) I don't know if you know this. Oh, wait, is it like that difference between like your first birthday is like your zero or yeah. So when you're born in Korea, you're one. Uh And on the new year, everyone legally turns a year older. Yeah. Regardless of what when you're so you can still be like, let's say, you know, my birthday's in April. Uh I would personally not be older, but by the new year, I would be legally older. So if I was turning 20 that year, I wouldn't have to wait until I was 20 in April to enjoy the 20 year old privileges like drinking. Right. Like it would happen. Yes. Like so technically a baby born December oh, 31st wow. in Korea is two years old a day after they're born. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a little confusing. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I'm not to, not if yeah, you live in Korea, but it's weird. I don't wow. like it because when I go back to Korea, they're like, you're 28 now. And I'm like, no, I'm not. But, um, <laughs> so on the paperwork, so it said 20 and 20 wow. for both my parents. That was wrong. Okay. They were 18. So they, yeah. So wow. Oh my, my God. birth mother said, I was just starting out interning at my company and I had to move far away from my family. So I was all alone living at the company actually had like dorms next to the office building, basically where employees could live for cheap, like in group rooms. She was living in one of those. But she had like a high school sweetheart kind of who she would see sometimes. But she said, like, I always knew I wasn't going to end up with him because he just wasn't the kind of man who like had a good head on his shoulders kind of thing. And she couldn't really like count on him or like trust him. But that man was my father and she ended up pregnant with me. Yeah. And she did not tell him because she totally knew that would be a bad idea. Okay. And since she was far away enough from home, she just hit it. She hit it from everyone. She is really tiny. And she showed me a picture of her eight Mm. months pregnant with my little sister. And you just can't tell. Mm -hmm. She was like, yeah, when I was pregnant with you, no one would let me sit in the pregnant lady seats on the bus or the train because it didn't look like I was pregnant. Okay, that wraps up part one of my conversation with Matt. I hope that you found what you heard interesting. I know I certainly did. And I am excited to put out part two next week where you will hear the conclusion to his story and hear our conversation on a couple more subjects related to adoption that tie it all together. My question for this week is in the spirit of going to a different country and staying there for a while and trying to fumble your way through a new language. If you woke up one day and instead of speaking the primary language that you currently speak, were completely fluent in a different language instead, which language would you choose to be fluent in? I think for me, there are so many. Um, I would probably choose French just because I studied it in undergrad and always wished I was more fluent. I stopped my studies right before I got to that point. And I love the way it sounds when you're listening to it. And I also had a lot of fun 
when I was, would speak it in class. So I would probably choose French. There will be an Instagram post, as per usual, where you should leave what language you choose to speak in the comments below. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted, Now What? Hosted by me, Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Leave a good review and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at imadopted.podcast. See you there.